It's good to be back. It's been a while since the last episode, so a huge shout out and thank you for sticking with The Curious Farmer. I don't know if you've noticed it, but here in Tassie, I've really felt the season shift from winter to spring. The growing season is almost upon us. I reckon that this week's episode is perfectly timed for veggie patchers, market gardeners and horticulturalists. So let's get started. My name is Kate and I'm the Curious Farmer. In 2012, my husband and I started Leap Farm. We apply ecological principles to try and benefit the environment while producing great tasting food. Our endeavour has led to more questions. So join me as I get all the dirt straight from the farmers, chefs, scientists and people who love to eat good food about how we can make informed decisions about the best ways to grow, shop and eat food with our health and the health of our planet in mind. You might recall in episode 6, I spoke with Helen Whitaker about her tiny scale farm. She mentioned that she was using a product on the veggie patch where she works called Macroboost. Uh, apart from the cow poo, do you actually buy in anything else? No, a bit of liquid, like sort of see what's actually a product, Macro Boost it's called. It's oh, fantastic. So wow. do you use that as a foliar spray? You can use it as both, yeah, the different products. I actually haven't used it here. I've only used it down at work. And the results have been incredible. And I actually thought maybe I'd use it a bit here. I don't really quite understand how they all work, but there are soy, there's a soil microbe one and there's a foliar spray. And there's... I wonder what the difference is. No, they have different Bio, elements, yeah, humus, and it's quite complex. I'm getting my head around it, just starting to use it. In episode 10, I spoke with Tony O'Connell, who uses biological agents on his blueberry grove. So we found with blueberries, because they're a understory bush that grows in, grows in a deciduous forest, that's where they originated from, they tend to like more of a, an organic matter that's actually with mulch and leaves breaking down, so they're really a fungal dominator type soil. And being a, in a monoculture orchard, the way we grow things, we had to use a bit of diversity, and the only way we could do that was to use microbes to bring them in to create that diversity back again. Um, so we found that was, well, after three years, we found the plants were less reliant than on put, us putting organic fertiliser on even. So um, now we just use um, some fish and seaweed and then <clears throat> then we use the microbes once a year to... to oh, only once a year? Only once a year now. In the spring? In just the spring, as they're about to... To really flourish and yeah. get going. Yeah. yeah. Being interested in regenerative farming practices means that I'm always learning. Reading about regenerating soils, I've learnt that increasing soil biology is both a cause and effect of increasing carbon sequestration. Before talking with Helen, I'd never heard of Macroboost. After our conversation, I googled it and ended up emailing and chatting with the owner of the operation, Brian Horsley. I discovered that Macroboost is a liquid soil conditioner that contains microbes, macro and micronutrients and biostimulants that are readily bioavailable to plants as the nutritional elements have been pre-digested and collated through a fermentation process. The microorganisms help activate processes such as soil photosynthesis and sequestration of carbon and nitrogen. The consequences of this is that nutrients already in the soil are better mobilised and more available to the plant and so improve root growth, 
nutrient density in the plant and crop yields. After ordering some, I realised pretty quickly that the cheapest way to get it was to pick it up. Brian was incredibly welcoming when I picked it up from his house and was kind enough to allow me to record the conversation I had with him about MacroBoost. And full disclosure, this was not sponsored in any way. I paid the full quoted website price for my two bottles of MacroBoost. Now I'm just excited that the soil's starting to warm up a bit so that I can try it on my veggie patch and see if I get better results. Where do you make the... Uh, a little factory's up at Deloraine. Oh, okay. Yep. So does that mean that other people are making it for you? You're just no, telling no, them what to put in? We have our production manager, Bounsey, was a farmer that I used to work with and then he had to sell his farm, so he decided to, uh, then I was working and he, he asked if he could work with me and I said, well, we need a another a production facility, so we built our little factory and... And, um, and so how do you actually make the stuff? I get a mother culture in from Austria. Uh, I've been working with the Austrian guys, a company called Multicraft. I've been working with them for more than 20 years. And then, right. uh, and then I did quite a bit of research on humic and fulvic substances and I found a manufacturer in the States who had a very high quality humates and see humic substances can vary quite a lot as well. Here we had coniferous forests inundated with salt water and so that gives you a particular breakdown over 60 million years. This particular ore body was savanna grassland inundated with fresh water so it gives you a different yeah. shaped carbon molecule and it's very compatible very high energy for us for our microbe. I mean you're kind of making soup aren't you? In a way? Well, oh, is it look, soupy then, then or is it... We use molasses as a food source, a substrate, to start growing. Your first ones are yeasts, and yeasts are kind of a bit like legumes in the forest. They're the first cab off the rank, and they will make low-level substrates which will help to feed other groups further down the track. So it's basically built around yeasts, lactic acid bacteria and photosynthetic bacteria. And that symbiotic relationship between those guys to your yeasts in actual fact feed your photosynthetic bacteria which produce sugars which feeds your yeast again. There's that relationship and then your lactic acid bacteria they are good suppressors of pathogens. Yes. And they Which is why we use them in cheese making. Exactly. Yeah. Nature likes diversity in the microcosm as well as the macrocosm, you know, and so the byproducts from one group are the food source for the next. What we're doing actually, even when we're doing putting microbes out into an environment we're putting quite small numbers in a way when you look at the whole background, but it's seeding a food chain. It's, yeah. it's starting the whole... Sometimes we might have an environment that's been worked hard commercially and it's been depleted in a lot of its diversity of, of microbes. There's a lot of microbes will actually retreat into dormancy. Some things like lactic acid bacteria, that you'll, they'll sporify. Mm. So you'll find if we put some milk down in the grass there, you'd actually get it colonised with lactic acid bacteria. So you've got a lot of microbes sitting in dormancy waiting for conditions to change so that they can wake up and get going. And mm -hmm. so when we come in with our very regenerative type soup, 
it can help to kickstart that food chain and to start things going. Has there been a lot of work, scientific work, in this field, or is this something that you've been collaborating with other people who are interested in this over a long Look, period of time? when I first started looking at microbes in agriculture 30 years ago, we were kind of looked upon as the lunatic fringe. <laughs> yes, I imagine you were. <laughs> so, but now, now there's a huge amount of work. It's now almost been driven by farmers and industries catching up. Farmers are seeing the whole chemical industry was taking them to the wall and so we'd reached a plateau and then actually things were retreating diseases were becoming more dominant so there is a big shift towards regenerative and and looking at natural environments and seeing how nature can help us do you use your products on your veggie patch of course (laughs) (laughs) i developed them for myself first of all you know oh so so is that how you started you were well as much as anything i was on another little project and I came across in, in northern New South Wales and it was an ultralight aircraft flying boat project that I was working on. I'd been out flying, I came back and there some people, I looked at their garden and I said, gee, you guys put a lot of love into your garden. And he goes, nah, it's this magic in a bottle. I've got this Japanese guy who's trying to get this going in Australia. But I could see that there was a colour in the garden that sparked my interest. So. Is it that deeper green almost or greener green yeah and I said well I need to know about it and so then I came back here to Tassie and I I contacted this Japanese guy in Horsham Victoria and we communicated and he sent me a little bit of this culture it was called in those days it was called EM or effective microorganisms I thought well I'll just play with it on my own patch first and see what I won't tell anybody about it and then eventually the neighbors came down and said look we're doing something down here we've got to know about it (laughs) That's how it sort of kicked off. So apart from having healthier plants, does it make the food that you grow taste better? Nutrient dense, and yeah. just sweet, you know, it improves photosynthesis. So photosynthesis yes. means sugars. I mean, our tomatoes, well, I gave a bag of tomatoes to my son and grandson got hold of them and he was eating them like apples. He said, these yeah. are just so sweet and they, they are. Again, your photosynthetic bacteria, they will colonise your leaf surface, but also photosynthesis can take place in the ground. There are spectrums of, of light that actually can penetrate into the ground ah. and depending on, of course, the type of soil, but it's a function that can actually happen on... Well, of course. I'd yeah. never really thought of that because, I mean, light has a spectrum and the human eye and brain can only see a small proportion of that spectrum. Exactly, and that's the same with... You've got photosynthetic bacteria, so, you know, I spray them I mean, just down here. Look, we've got lemons and oranges and grapefruit and, and we're... At 300 plus meters you know facing the mountain you improve your sugars it's a antifreeze right so, of course because of the osmotic effect of the sugars and also your chloroplasts on your leaf your leaf structures can can thicken okay and so that, so that provides, again, provides more, yes more it, protection yeah i saw that there was just the microbes on their own were fantastic but in some depleted environments i thought we need to give the microbes a lunchbox so when you're putting anything into a new environment, that's what they call an environmental shock load. And so if they have a little bit of protection or a bit of a food source, then it gives them a better chance of establishing you know, in an environment. Uh, yes. That's how I started on that journey. We get kelp from marijuana, we get fine ground, and then we actually ferment that with the microbes, and then we add that to our formulations, and then I get, say, get the humic substances from the States, and then we put them together in a, with a nice heat blanket around the 
around the vat so that they they're tucked tickled. up. They're tucked <laughs> up and nice and warm, and they they so it's it's all built on fermentation. Then I looked at the idea of of putting nutrients to in some soil so you can kick things along, and so we use actually conventional agricultural nutrients, but the fermentation cycle actually allows the microbes to pre-digest those nutrients and break them back down into stable and, and plant-available substances. I made one brew, actually I made it for the initially for the guys in Queensland, for the macadamia and, and avocado growers, and we were using the byproduct from the Bundaberg a distillery called uh, Dunder, which and I again just saw a nice byproduct that had nutrients and would be a good substrate or food source for microbes. So we added that. We thought, well, they were wanting to compost their their prunings, and so mo- removing material from this off the site, mulching it up, adding manures to compost it. I said, well, look, let's let's look at it differently. Mulch it up, put it back directly on the ground. You've got a high carbon material, so we need some nitrogen, so let's make a brew that's high in nitrogen. And so we did it with urea. Our early experiments here with a rice cooker and a, um, <laughs> a tabletop to see what we could, how much urea we could dissolve and then have viable biology in it. We did manage to get it up to 22%, but it, it's pretty hard. That sort of high level of salt is fairly hard on your microbes. So we've taken it back down to about 17% nitrogen and that still gives us quite a high level of viable biology and then we add molasses a little bit of molasses and, and the microbes um, and, the, and the humic substances you see humates being a carbon source in nature there's another ratio is a carbon nitrogen ratio nature likes balances mm. you know so people put urea out on the paddocks farmers and it's 46% nitrogen but there's no carbon with it. Mm. So what does the what does the nitrogen do? It's Sits looking there for carbon. Runs it off. runs off looking for, oh, there's carbon dioxide. Mm. There we go. Um, so it dissipates. You lose you can lose twenty, thirty percent just like that. How does that urea that's put on the paddocks by the farmers get deep? Because it just sits on the surface, doesn't yeah, and, it? And most of it has disappeared. So without the carbon to stabilise it, yeah. I mean, there is now again people are doing some work and, and putting coating some of the urea prelules with with some humic substances, and that does help. So they're waiting, basically waiting for it to rain and wash it in. And again, it's but that's still only going to penetrate the first few millimetres of topsoil, isn't it? Yes. It did. It'll work its way down, but it's again, it's not in balance. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah. if you have low carbon levels in your soil anyway, and you're putting high levels of nitrogen on, again, you're going to be burning out that carbon. Anyway, we did, had the, a uni guy did a study on this brew that I made up, and he came back and said, "Look, I don't understand this." He said, "You know, it goes in in a mineral form, and within your process, and we're putting it out onto a test soil sample." He said, "It's showing 96% organic nitrogen." Yeah, it's it's converted. I said, of course it has. You know, that's what nature does. That urea was converted back into an organic form, but see, plants will take it up in a nitrate form, and it goes into an ammonium form and then to a nitrate form. And so what he was seeing was that the ammonium pool was staying stable. The nitrate that was being drawn down the, by the plants as required. Again, if you've got a biology and that communication, there's amazing communication in nature. 30 to 40 percent of its energy through photosynthesis through growing is actually returning to the soil Mm. to feed the biology Mm. which will feed the plant. Mm. This has been a realisation for me in the last 
I don't know, six to 12 months. Now that I'm reading more and talking to more people about what the plants do. That's it, you know. So plants will actually, sometimes they'll put out a signal to attract mm. the biology that they want. Mm. It'll solubilise the, the nutrients or the food that they need and to take it up. So, so what's the problem with using synthetic fertilisers? Is it because it's high nitrogen with low carbon? Or? Well, again, you know, it's often they're put on and they are in a form that's not readily, yeah, they would call them water-soluble. And so a plant, see, a plant will feed through several different mechanisms. One is, as we talked about, is biology, you know, the plant asking a microbe to solubilise and supply it with a nutrient. Part of it is we see through photosynthesis, through light, but there's also osmosis. And so these chemical fertilisers, while often you get food that's been grown with high levels of synthetic fertilisers, they're blown up, they don't taste well, you know. And so it's the osmotic pressure, you know, so that high nutrient is, is actually been, it's almost like the plants are forced to take it up. Ah, oh, and, and, so and then because they've got all that, that solute, I guess, in there, they have to have a lot more water, which results in that watered-down flavour. Yes. Where yeah. a tomato doesn't, it, it's sort of yeah. like a, a facsimile or a... Yeah. or something yeah. of a tomato, what yeah. a tomato should taste like. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, we're not, our, our brews aren't actually liquid fertilisers. They have a level of those nutrients there to sort of make some nutrients available to plants. The lunchbox. It's a lunchbox. Okay. And, and are they foliar sprays or we do you spray them on, yeah, on got, the soil? Well, see, we've got, I have made some foliars, but also the soil is where they you know. Yeah, I was trying all. to understand foliar sprays because I couldn't quite well, work out why you would see, spray something on a leaf when well, it's needed at the root. I can put a foliar spray on. See, the, the fulvic acid is one of, again, one of nature's amazing tools. Fulvic acid will penetrate directly into a cell. It's a great carrier. It's a great oh, rhythm okay. agent. So, I mean, the fulvic acid that we actually use... Um, I take it every day. It's a, it's a, if you look up the health benefits of fulvic acid, All right. it's, it's brilliant. You know, it's very good for chelating metals, like heavy metals in your system, so right. changing them, breaking them down so your body can excrete, excrete them. them, you know, get rid of them. But also in nature, they can, that chelation is also a way of plant being able to take a nutrient in and, and to metabolise nutrients. See, if we, we put on a foliar and you can, you can find it, secretions coming out of the root Within, within hours, within you know, no time at all. Actually, wow. with, yeah. because of the circulation in the yes. plant, it's See, taken up little, so rapidly. Right. Yeah, it can go into a plant, and the plant goes, "Oh, this is great! I'll throw some down here. I'll use some here." Again, it's it's understanding the, the amazing dimension of communication there is in in plants and in nature, in the soil. You know, where, can, do, where does fulvic acid come from? It's a final stage of breakdown, humic acid and fulvic acid, humates, you know, yeah. like it's, it's, you know, we're looking at humus, yes. it's actually the final breakdown of organic material, like for us we call it 60 million year old compost. So how do you create that? I mean, you don't want to be digging up well, that it 60 is. It's million an, it's, year old compost. Well, it's an ore body. You know, it, it is being dug up, you know, we're digging up coal, it's like the people are using various lignite and, and uh, ignite ores. I've had to do a bit of research to try and really understand what humic and fulvic acids are. I knew that they were important to soil and I assumed that they could be created through composting. I knew that they enriched the soil, but up until recently, I didn't understand why or how. 
What I have discovered is that while compost may contain humic substances, it's not actually humus. It's vastly different. It's just decaying organic matter. Humic substances are comprised of humic acids, fulvic acids and humin. They're stable, long-lasting biomolecules that stick around in soil for over a thousand years. In stark contrast, composted organic matter only lasts a short period of time, weeks to years, before it's utilised by plants, by soil biomass and also lost to the atmosphere. Humic substances arise in part from amino acids, and you probably remember from school that amino acids are the building blocks of proteins and they're essential to all life. And this is where it starts to come together. The biggest source of the amino acid foundation for humic substances comes from the glomus species of mycorrhizae. Now, you've heard me talking about these fungal networks in the soil before. They're particularly associated with undisturbed grassy regions, such as ungrazed pastures and the prairie grasses of North America. Humic substances are really important to plants because they act as carriers of water and nutrients to the plant roots. They are anions, which means they are negatively charged. Because of their charge, positive molecules are attracted and stick close, which prevents them from leaching down into the soil subsurface or being washed away into river systems. Humic acids and the nutrients associated with them are attracted to the plant's depletion zone around the root. The depletion zone is the region of soil right around the root. This area is depleted of nutrients because the root has sucked them all up. As the humic substances and nutrients make their way through the soil to the roots, the nutrients are then more attracted to the more negatively charged root and so break their attraction to the humic substance and are absorbed by the root. So this is kind of confusing. I've developed a bit of a metaphor to think about humic substances and something that we'll all understand given our recent lockdown or our ongoing lockdown in some parts of this country. Humic substances are like the posties of the world and your legs, the root of the plant. Stay with me here, I promise. So you've been wearing your PJs a lot recently. It's been really easy to because you've been hashtag staying at home during the pandemic. And you need your PJs, otherwise you can't thrive during these weird times. But your PJs have become depleted because you've been wearing them so much. They've got holes in the knees and are threadbare. They're your depleted zone. So you jump online and you order a pair from your favourite PJ provider and they're shipped. Without the posties to deliver them, it's going to take ages for them to arrive in the mail. The more posties, the more stuff that you order online can get to your depletion zone. So you need your PJs, but we also need our posties to provide us with the isonutrition. <laughs> so let's get back to the science. Before I started researching what humic substances actually are, I naively thought that you could just create them from compost. This is unfortunately not the case. To increase humic levels in the soil appreciably, you need to add it as an amendment. But where do you get it from? Some can be created from compost, but you just don't get the high levels that are required without all the additional nutrients from the decaying organic matter. Humic substances exist naturally in soils, peats, oceans and fresh waters. 
One source of humic acids are the sedimentation layers referred to as leonidite. I think I said that okay. These layers were originally deep in the Earth's crust, but over many years have been exhumed to near-surface locations. Humic acids are found in really high concentrations in these layers. So, aside from the small amounts that you can make in compost, the best way to introduce humic acids or humic substances to your soils is to actually mine these sedimentary layers and then apply them. So where do you get your fulvic acid to put in your Fulvic acid is the lighter fraction. This particular extraction method is high quality water and the ore is put in the water and then sunlight is reflected on it. Oh. It's a fairly unusual ore body. There is commercial and even chemical extraction methods, which again is why we're kind of a little bit particular about the type of humic substances that we use. There's some great work done. Eastern Europe was doing a lot of work with humates when they couldn't afford our high-quality fertilisers. <laughs> <laughs> so they were way ahead of us on, on the use of humic substances. So there's some, yeah, some, some great work being done by a lot of people over a long time. And to get these substances, to be able to then put them back into the soil, is that something that's going to be environmentally sustainable? Look, we're digging up coal by the millions. Oh, I know. So, yes, I mean, in a way, the amount that we're using is very small. Okay, you know, right. So, you know, gradually we're building up our soil carbon levels and we need to use a lot less. Yeah, know, so, so once, once we get to a certain point, then it... It's a self, yeah, you know, ra- I mean, it ratchets itself up, yeah, doesn't it, we, really? You know, we, what I'm seeing with some of the, like the berry growers, they're saying, look, we're just getting so much growth. I said, Butch, cut your fertiliser back. He said, I have, we'll do it. I said, cut it back again. So we're seeing that. You've done yourself out of a job. <laughs> well, it's great, you know, I mean, uh, this is what we want. You know, yeah. have a more you know, dynamic and healthy soil environment, or these are, these guys are hydroponic and, I was reading an article the other day of uh, some English universities discovering that uh, perhaps you know, if we can add plant probiotics to the hydroponics, it might be improve things dimensionally. And I said, yeah, so I've been doing this for the last... <laughs> I have a one grower in West Australia who's... He is very switched on and, and the results that he's seen with adding some biology to the both to the substrate and as a foliar has just made... Of course it has. Yeah, yes, it's the missing link. <laughs> Plants aren't meant to be grown in water. <laughs> They're yeah, meant to be, course, unless yeah. they've evolved to that yes. environment, yes. of yeah. course. <sighs> but we're still looked upon as a bit loony. <laughs> oh, I think I don't think you're loony. I think the conversation's changed. I think it was for a very long time. It was only the early adopters, but I think because oh, of our very at, fragile has, soils has, yeah, and our, our dry has, weather, yeah, so. we're all looking at ways that we can retain water in soil yep. because of this and deluge add dry carbon to your soil. and add carbon. See, and I this mean, is this the best way to do it. That, yeah, there's a lot of interest down in biochar. Yes. biochar is a carbon source. Yes. Fantastic. But the missing link in the biochar, it's a colony space. It's a home for microbes. So you inoculate it with some microbes, job done. You know, it's a... Yeah. One of my first podcasts was speaking to Christina Giudici, who is a soil scientist and does a lot of work over in the West Coast rehabilitating. But she's spoken to me before about biochar and she described it as shelving for the soil. Mm. And it's great shelving, but you've got to put some books on the shelves. 
Exactly. Yeah. Mm. We do foliage, but the focus is on the soil. Again, nutrients. I, there's a product that I've, people have been using, and they go, "Oh, it's it's ten, ten, ten. It's really balanced." And I go, "Ten, ten, ten is completely out of balance." You know, mm. like if we're looking at, you know, the way nutrients are in the soil, uh, or, or the way in which nutrients can be taken up by plants, that is wasting so much nutrient and putting so much pressure on plants. Yes, you've got yeah. a massive nitrogen hit, but. Um, you know, it's it's probably a, a proper ratio is probably closer to two two one rather than ten ten ten. You know. And you're talking about NPK. NPK, yeah. yeah. Like, but we do like I do, I do one uh, like the calcium brew, and again calcium same in our bodies. Oh, it's so a ra- relationship between calcium and magnesium, and it's usually in nature the, the optimum kind of ratio is six to one calcium magnesium ratio, and then. There's another element that that functionalizes or mobilizes calcium, and that's boron. Oh yeah. And see, you know, calcium's the truck, but boron's the driver. I'll talk all day, so we better. Oh go no, and no, that's fine. <laughs> so we. No, uh, I'm, I'm our, absolutely our fascinated. Our, so our cow, by our cow booster is actually, uh, and again, because I wanted that as a foliar, but well, the, the growers wanted it as a foliar uh, to have a have a functional calcium foliar spray I, I took the humates out and added more fulvic so again, just only if so the, for the, to stop the residue but we have that and again pretty close to a 6 to 1 calcium magnesium ratio and, and a uh, uh, and with a with a boron driver in there so so how often do you have to uh, add the oh the every day <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, is it at the start of a season, at the end of the season, Look, a couple of times a year? It's it's maintaining um, high levels of it's instead of you know like we're old blokes, you need the young ones to come along. So it, by putting in uh, in an active growing season, um, look here, I, I I kind of own garden, I you know maybe every couple of weeks. Oh really? Ten days, you know, I'll give them a top up only because I I like to. Again, when you've got something like the hydroponics, if you've got uh, hydroponics, I feel like you almost the, need to be dripping it in a little well, bit every day. Well, it's actually better. What we've found is it's better to again things work in cycle. Taking the biology through what they call a bell curve through that exponential yep. growth yep. phase. So we might get our yeast going through an exponential growth phase, and then as their byproduct, you know, sort of their numbers build up, their byproducts build up, and that starts to feed another group. Yes. In, the, in the chain so and if we if we look at a you know in a linear direction so there's a there's an overlapping but actually in nature there's nothing linear it's all dimensional yes you know? and even food chains they're dimensional they're not linear by bringing in new generational activity we're actually maintaining biology the, the dynamics at a higher level so when plants are really at high production sometimes we need to be helping them to giving them a few young blokes to kind of kick the nutrients in you know to supply yeah. that that energy so it, again it comes down to energy everything's frequency and energy unfortunately see we wanted to push things all the time for production and whatever so we need to it's balancing well we do wastewater stuff and I'm saying well in wastewater it's balancing nutrient load with biological activity and the same thing it's, it's creating trying to work with nature and look at, at the balance we're wanting to have high level production. Okay, let's make sure we have high
high level of active biology and nutrient exchange. So basically what you're saying is you need to be looking at what it is that you're growing and responding to its needs rather Absolutely. than following uh, every Absolutely. two weeks you and do it. Too many growers now, farmers aren't, aren't farmers anymore, they're, they're reading computer sheets. Yeah, I see so many of the commercial growers, they've got a recipe. Yes, the recipe's a useful sort of starting point, but also look at what's happening day to day with your weather, you know, mm. the, the amount of water that a plant is going to need on a hot day or we need to be in tune with, with nature. We need to look at the plants, their requirements, and actually look how they're growing. And saying, yeah. okay, you guys could probably do a little help here. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Curious Farmer. If you too have questions or any comments about this episode, please contact me at thecuriousfarmer at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends and subscribe. If you can, rate and review it. It keeps me going and makes it easier for other people to find. Till next time.